Amen. Turn with you this morning uh, to the book of Colossians again today. Today we are in the second chapter of Colossians, um, verses 6 through 15. Uh, if you're with us uh, this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word as we read together Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. So live in Christ Jesus the Lord in the same way as you received him. Be rooted and built up in him. Be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. See to it that nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts rather than Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ's body. And you have been filled by him who is the head of every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised by him. This wasn't performed by human hands. The whole body was removed through this circumcision by Christ. You were buried with him through baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead because of the things you had done wrong and because your body wasn't circumcised, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you had done wrong. He destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're in, right in the middle of four weeks, four out of seven weeks uh, kind of walking together through the book of Colossians. I've noticed that summer in Idaho is really beautiful and people have a tendency to go enjoy that. And so it may be that you may have missed one of the last three weeks. And so let me catch up a little bit. Um, the book opens, we think the letter of Colossians is likely written by Paul and written to a church that he didn't start um, but was started by a colleague, a friend, and he is writing to this church, likely from prison in Ephesus. And he's writing them to encourage them, but also concerned about some things that he has heard. He opens the letter with thanksgiving and gratitude for all that God is doing in their life, but he, he prays this powerful prayer, and we looked at it three weeks ago, this prayer that, that they would be filled with these three things, with faith, hope, and love, but faith, hope, and love would also be combined with discernment. Um, that they would be able to discern what it means to embody that, to live that out together. A couple weeks ago, Caleb preached on, on the, the really beautiful Christ hymn that we get in Colossians then, where Paul says, this is really the story that binds our life together. Christ first, Christ last, Christ in between. All things rooted in him. He is the source of our life and the source of not only all that has been, but he is the source of all the new creation, all that will be. And then last week, we kind of looked at this little transition where Paul begins to say, now I've heard probably that some of you are wondering, why are we taking advice from somebody who's sitting in prison? Maybe somebody more successful could give us some advice. Um, but he writes to say, listen, the sufferings that I'm going through in some ways are for your sake, but also here's the deal. If that's our story that the new creation is coming, that new creation is not, it doesn't come easily. It comes, it comes with challenges. The old world does not die easily. It comes with birth pangs. And so, 
So this invitation to participate is also an invitation to participate in many of the sufferings of Christ, if not to complete the sufferings of Christ. And and so Paul can even rejoice in what he's going through and see that as part of of the the inbreaking of the new creation. Today, the text begins to shift and really, I think, carries forward through the rest of this little letter. In fact, the challenge of the next four weeks is to not preach the same sermon four times in a row. Um, Thank you. Um, But if you'll turn back with me to verses 9 and 10. All the fullness of deity lives in Christ's body. And you have been filled by him. That's the common English Bible. Some of you may have the NRSV or the NIV in front of you. I kind of like the translations there. There, they say something along these lines. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And here's the key line. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So it's not just the fullness of the deity that dwells in Christ. Now you are full of, but... But because of that connection to Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And so in many ways, I think the next three or four weeks all get to the main concern that Paul has for these Colossian Christians. And that, if I could summarize it in one word, is this. He's concerned about their maturity. He's concerned about their their Christian maturity. I find it interesting in Colossians, he's really gentle about that. In fact, he's really kind, but that is his concern. He, he, He wants them to grow up. He's kind of sweet about it in Colossians, and maybe that's because they're relatively new believers. Um, he's really gracious about it. And the reason I say that is because, as many of you know, some of my favorite letters of the Apostle Paul are First and Second Corinthians, where he's not quite so kind, but he wants them to grow up too. But in Corinthians, he says things like this. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. I would like to give you meat, you big babies, but I have to give you milk, Right? I wish you would grow up, but you haven't yet, so I I kind of have to spoon-feed you in this kind of way. But this aspect of maturity is really important. And if you've been in the church at all in your life, you know that, that maturity, and Christian maturity in particular, doesn't always match our chronological age. In fact, some of the most Christianly mature people I've known in my life in the church have actually been relatively young. Um, one of the first verses I learned as a young person, 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anybody think little of you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity. Oftentimes, some folks who are surprisingly not only young chronologically, but oftentimes some folks who are relatively new in faith embody an amazing Christian maturity. And on the flip side, Not always, but sometimes some folks who've been here a while. And you've got a few years on the odometer and uh, got some gray hair or lack thereof. Ought to be mature, but aren't. And I do think as we think about Christian maturity, Christian maturity is pretty holistic. We can think about various aspects of maturity. Certainly there is an important aspect of physical maturity as we grow up. But as we grow up, there's also emotional maturity and intellectual maturity, relational maturity. And I do think at some level, spiritual maturity encompasses those kinds of things as well. Paul wants us to grow up, to be 
to be what Christ desires us to be and to live into that maturity together. But if you're taking notes this morning, in Colossians, there are two reasons, I think, that Paul feels like they're not as mature as they should be. And so let's think about those two reasons. And the first one is this. It appears that for some of the Colossians, they aren't as mature as they ought to be. They haven't lived into this fullness because they are still, in many ways, trapped in the kind of life that they used to be a part of. That they were part of, and there's an interesting, I know you didn't come to church this morning to learn Greek, but there's a cool, couple of cool Greek words in the text this morning. One is the word sto- stoicheia, which is a really difficult word to translate. That We oftentimes translate it as kind of the elemental things, the elemental matters. But it seems that what Paul is saying there is that you used to live these lives where you were shaped by the stories, the gods, the, the images, the imaginations of the local deities. And it shaped the ways that you viewed yourself, reality, others. And, and all of those were false stories, and so they trapped you in certain kinds of ways. And for, so for some of you, the immaturity is, as you've entered into this new Christological, Christ-centric story, you brought some of that with you, and you're not supposed to bring that with you. And so here's what immaturity looks like. You've still kind of got all these other gods on the shelf, and you've just added Jesus in, as like I like to say, you've added Jesus in as a kind of condiment to life. So you're still living like everybody else. It just goes better with a little Jesus on top. But the problem with that is it leads you to an immaturity. It leads you to a divided mind. You can't love both God and this other. You can't serve them. You'll either love the one and hate the other, be devoted to the one, despise the other. You just can't do that for very long. And so Paul goes into this language of you were baptized. And he even goes not only into baptism language, but crucifixion language. And it's fascinating when he, he, he implies that, that in the cross, where Jesus is laid bare, he is stripped and derided and, and becomes an aspect of shame. In that moment where all is laid bare, in the irony for Paul, what is laid bare is not actually Christ, but it's all of those principalities and powers. So if you're with me this morning, is it okay if I use the word naked? Who's naked at the cross? Is it Jesus? Yeah. But for Paul, it's not Jesus that actually gets exposed. It is the principalities and powers. So if you think about the crucifixion, at the cross, we get to see the ugliness of of the religious leaders. We get to see the ugliness of the principalities and powers. We even get to see the ugliness of our own inability as disciples to follow all the way. Right? We, who's exposed at the cross? Paul says all of those schemes that used to hold your life, they have been exposed. And so when you entered the water of baptism, again, back to the nakedness, you took all your clothes off. You left all that behind. But the problem is some of you... left some stuff on. And he came out of the water not having left that all behind. And I do think that's an important part of our immaturity. That it's so difficult for us to fully leave all of the kinds of ways that we are shaped by the stoicheia of our own day. I talk about that a lot. A lot of the isms that we face 
Caleb mentioned a few a couple of weeks ago. Let me just mention one this morning I've been thinking a lot about, especially uh, the last few weeks in the news and, and even Independence Day, all that kind of stuff going on. I, I've thought a lot about the kind of idolatry to a certain kind of freedom that shapes our imagination. I want to be careful here. I'm a big fan of freedom. The scripture is a big fan of freedom. But I think oftentimes for us, culturally, we have associated freedom, and I find this true, uh, not to pick on you too much, but I find this true in Idaho a lot. We think of freedom really as don't mess with me, right? I have a few neighbors that fly those flags. You know, don't mess with me, right? That freedom is actually the freedom (laughs) to not have to pay attention to anybody else, to kind of do what we want to do, to have the freedom for ultimate self-determination and not be accountable to anybody or recognize the communal connection and nature of our existence. Are you with me? Now, (laughs) not to confuse that, but but I've thought about that a lot in the news cycles, that that one of the outgrowths of our freedom is a world filled with a lot of violence. I was thinking about this, actually. I was stuck in a TSA line recently at an airport. Not Boise. That's a really wonderful TSA line. But, uh, but I was stuck in this TSA line, and I was worried I was going to miss my flight because the line was so backed up. But my thought was, as I'm taking off my shoes and getting all my computers out and doing all the things that I had to do, I was thinking, freedom's great, isn't it? Because... Um, for us, oftentimes freedom means such self-determination that now we constantly live in fear of each other. I, I thought about also, I was reading an article recently that was sort of celebrating um, Generation Z is the current generation. I don't know if you pay attention to those kinds of things. That's kind of the young people today. Um, millennials are old now. Uh, they have jobs and stuff. Uh, but Gen Z is coming up which also means we're out of letters. They're the last generation. It's the end of the world as we know it. I don't feel fine, Uh, but we have Gen Z. But this article was celebrating what boomers, busters, Gen Xers, millennials, the kinds of ways that they have given to, and, and the article is praising this, have given a gift to Generation Z. And the gift that we've given to Generation Z, this article is sharing, is we've given them absolute complete freedom to live out, especially their sensual desires, but to live out their desires any way that they want to. And we've given them complete freedom to discover identity any way that they want to. And this article is celebrating how each generation successively has given to them that freedom. And, And I want to be careful here. That's better than oppression. But as I was reading the article... I couldn't help but think about, uh, some of you know my kind of fascination with Nietzsche, that that Nietzsche, the philosopher, loved this idea that that we could go out and kind of destroy all of the social constructions of reality, be absolutely free to determine our own will, to determine our own existence. But then later he realized, oh, whoops, we killed God. And through the voice of his prophet, he'll say things like this, we have unchained the earth from the sun. And so when I read the article, I, it was hard for me to celebrate. I kept thinking, here's the gift that we as a culture have given to Generation Z. Absolutely no story to guide their lives. Except for desire. Which is an interesting story, but it, 
But a life driven by desire doesn't really let me know how do I, why would I commit to this person for longer than it meets my desires? I kept thinking about a whole generation that has no ability to have a story to articulate why would you have children or why would you not have children it, other than do you want them or not, right? Like th- there's no guiding narrative other than self. But the problem is you and I know desire becomes, and I think we see this in all sorts of fractured ways in our culture, desire becomes itself a form of bondage. So I'm constantly... I'm constantly enslaved to my own desire, and I can't get out of those, and oftentimes those become addictive in behavior. Are you with me? And so I read that thinking, yeah, see, I mean, it's easy for us to to fail to discern the ways that we're captured by those realities and to leave those behind and enter into a new kind of commitment, relationship, Christ-centeredness. And so Paul is concerned about that. He wants them to get through the waters and leave it. Leave that stuff. Let it go, let it go, let it go. I want, always want to add that to the hymnal. Let it go. If we had hymnals, let it go. Um, so we pass through. But here's the second concern. Some of them have let it go, and they got through the water only to find themselves giving themselves up to another form of a bonding, bondage. So look with me. Um, Verse 8, see to it that nobody enslaves you. Now, I I know I taught you one Greek word, but this is the last one. The word that gets translated enslaves there is the word syllagogon. Cool word. Some scholars argue that Paul is is participating in a kind of word play here. Um, If you just move one letter, change one letter in synagogue on the verb meaning enslaved, you get the word synagogue. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, there's a new commercial out that cracks me up. It's a commercial for Meineke, right? The, um, the car service place, Meineke. Have you seen this commercial? It's great. They have a, a, a pretend German character who says, yeah, Meineke, right? Like, I, you're not laughing. This is really a funny ad. Uh, <laughs> Main key, right? Um, I'm, I trust the main key to main key, right? Like they're playing, doing a wordplay. Trust me, it's funny, all right? Um, really fun. Some scholars think that's what, what Paul is doing here. He's playing a kind of word game where they have set themselves free from what used to bind them, but now they've given themselves over to the law. And, and they've, been ta- they've been drawn in to the Torah, to synagogue life. And, and in some ways for Paul, that's a healthier thing to be in bondage to than this was. But that legalism is still a form of bondage for Paul. And so they have, rather than been, being set free, they've just given themselves over from one form of bondage to another. And that's where all this language comes in of you're being pushed to do things like getting circumcised in the flesh, but you, when baptism you are already fully circumcised in Christ, like that's where all that language is going to say, don't go back to that kind of bondage either. And so I don't want to ruin next week's sermon because this is where next week goes. But Paul is very concerned about this kind of immaturity that hasn't let go of sin, but he's also concerned about this immaturity that has never moved away from forms of legalism as a form of faith. Have I lost you there? So he wants this kind of maturity 
that is able to move beyond those things. And so what does that look like? What does maturity look like? Let me give you two or three suggestions. I think the life of maturity, Christian maturity in particular, lives in a kind of tension. I'll use a a philosophical term. Christian maturity lives, is able to live in a kind of what I'll call a dialectical tension. Um, I need to unburden myself today. I'm a little irritated with an online article that I read recently. And I'm kind of irritated because I think I got quoted without being quoted in it. Um, There's an article critical of what's called the Via Media in Wesleyanism. I know I lost some of you there. But the Nazarenes have roots in Methodism, and Methodism has roots in Anglicanism. Anglicanism was trying to find a via media, a middle way, between Catholicism and Protestantism. But not as a way to be kind of a squishy middle that didn't make any commitments. But what the Anglicans saw was they wanted the beauty of a personal relationship with Jesus that is rooted in Scripture alone and faith alone and grace alone. But at the same time, they saw a danger in disconnecting themselves from historic Christian faith, but also especially from the, the sacramental practices that had come to them through Catholicism. Are you with me? And, they, and so the via media wasn't a way to be squishy. It was a way to, to hold those things in tension. That the Christian faith, is it personal? Yes. Is it communal? Yes. And this article is, I think, adopting actually a spirit of this age that says the only way to live these days is to live at the extremes of one margin or the other yelling at each other. And so the article kind of says these folks in the via media, they're walking down the middle of the road and, they be, and what happens? You become roadkill, right? Don't be squishy. But here's what, if you're with me, here's what drives me crazy in this text for Paul. Paul is worried that their old life was very spiritualistic and didn't care about the body, but now he's worried that they're caring about the body too much. So what does he want them to do? Be spiritualistic or be materialistic? I don't know. Is Jesus fully divine or is he fully human? Yes. And it seems like the theology Paul's doing in Colossians is saying, if we make Jesus too divine and eliminate some of his humanness, we stray. And if we eliminate, if we emphasize his humanness and eliminate some of his divinity, we stray. And so what do we do? We have to live in this tension of of both the human and the divine coming together in Christ Jesus. Is the revelation in Christ Jesus full of grace and truth? Yes. As I say so often, if we get grace without truth, we get kind of sentimentality. If we get truth without grace, we get legalism. In Christ, they come together in beauty. And so for Paul, is the life of faith something only God can do in us? Yes. But should we go and sit on a mountain and wait for God to do that? No. Is the life then something we do in the flesh? Yes. But is it something that we do in the flesh so that we grit our teeth and work and and what that kind of looks like in our day and age is we create sort of schemes to market Jesus or 
or we build cults of celebrity built solely on the humanistic personalities and abilities of leadership, right? No! <laughs> and so what do we do? We wait on the Lord, but not like you wait on a doctor. Thumbing through magazines. But we are a people preparing ourselves for the movement of God, anxiously expecting that day to day, recognizing that God doesn't do this without us, but we can't do it on our own either. And we're able then, as mature people, to live in those kinds of dialogical tensions. I, this is so important. I, I, I was at a camp meeting a couple weeks ago, and I, a family came to me, really difficult, difficult circumstances going on in their lives. And they kind of looked at me and said, we love the sermon tonight. What are we supposed to do? And I said, well, here are the three things. They all start with the letter B, right? <laughs> what I said to them is, I don't know. That is so difficult. But I can pray with you that God would help you discern what it means to be an instrument of both grace and truth in this unbelievably difficult experience. And my guess is there are going to be times when God calls you to be an instrument of truth, and there's going to be times when God calls you to be, be more graceful. But there is a maturity, a Christian maturity that's able to live in those kinds of tensions. And because of that, then this is important. Then we, we only become mature in community. You should not trust me to be that mature. I need you to help me be the mature person of Christ that I'm called to be. And no offense, you need me. We need each other. I don't trust you. But I love you. <laughs> And we need the community of faith to help us to discern what it means to embody heaven and earth coming together as it came together in Christ in the life of the community together. And lastly, ironically, one of the first steps to maturity is recognizing that we're not mature and confessing that we're not. Again, I don't want to ruin next Sunday because it's going to be really good, but, but next Sunday we're going to see in the text that part of the problem in the church often is immature. The problem is immature people think they're mature. And so one of the ways that we move to maturity is always being open to confessing the fact that we're not yet what we are meant to be. This section opens with Paul saying, you are rooted and established in Christ. That's such a beautiful agrarian metaphor that says your roots are in him, but now you're going to grow. And you've got to keep on growing. One of the challenges, sisters and brothers, in the holiness tradition has been, at times we have thought, there comes a point when you're done. And I know Pastor Diane would agree with this. I've heard her say something like this. It's kind of like if you win the humility award and you, and you take it, you have to give it back. If you claim to be fully holy, uh, you might want to ask your friends. Um, that doesn't mean that we're just simply stuck and bound in sin. But it means, and I, I love the Eastern Orthodox tradition on this, it means that the love and the mercy and the grace and the knowledge of God is so vast for the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's not even, we don't even get fast forward after death. 
We kind of pick up where we left off and spend eternity moving into, growing into, maturing in the love and mercy and goodness of God. And so ironically, the most mature people are the people who are able to confess how immature we still are. And the holiest people often in the room are the people who are able to confess how far they still have to go in the transformation of the love of God. Which, hang in the tension, is not a proclamation of defeat, but it is the optimism of grace. It says God can even meet us right now where we are, as immature as we sometimes can be, and lead us to maturity. And so maturity is difficult. Maturity recognizes there's no simple plan you can just kind of put into work and make this happen. There's no little tract or brochure. <laughs> um, there's no app on your phone. It's learning to live in the tensions of the life to which we are called. It's doing that together. It's also doing that confessing that Christ meets us graciously and draws us deeper and deeper into maturity with him. God, help us today. Um, I, I pray for some who are here this morning um, who are still uh, quite immature in faith, some because they're brand new, and that's great, but some because they haven't they're still trying to hang on to some of the old life. Help them today to continue to let that go. And not just old beliefs. Some, for some, that's, that's letting go of old narratives that have shaped them, experiences that have damaged. Help us, by your grace and with your power, to to let those things go and to embrace the newness in you. But have mercy on us for the ways we often meet those coming out of the water free from that old bondage only to put new bondage on them. And so help us to know what that looks like. Um, we confess we have so much maturing still to do. So finish your work in us, we pray today. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And would you stand with me?
Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. And holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you, open up my eyes. Open up my eyes in 
as we get ready to go, just a reminder, we'd love to, those of you who are able to be with us tonight, um, just a quick congratulations and a little announcement. Um, Pastor Diane and Pastor Brent uh, have been working on a book for, for a long time. In fact, in some ways, this is a culmination of a lot of Pastor Diane's work. The Backside of the Cross, an Atonement Theology for the Abused and Abandoned. Um, it's out and available on an Amazon near you. Um, Having conversations with both of them and reading the manuscript for this um, has helped me so much to be reminded that when Christ went to the cross, he not only took on our sin, but he took on our shame. And um, although we all carry sin, many of us carry way more shame than we ought. And that Christ would want us to bear, but Christ meets us there. So thanks, Diane. Um, If you've listened well this morning, Grow up, all right? Root yourself in him. Let's become mature. We holiness folk, we got a word for that, a sanctified life. As you hear this benediction, notice it's a prayer that our whole spirit, soul, and body, like all of it, would be captured by the maturing grace of Christ. So may the God of peace himself, may he help us grow up and be sanctified through and through. May our whole spirit, our soul, our body, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is so gracious and patient and faithful. And he will not stop until he finishes that work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace. Have a great week.